All right, let's open up our Bibles to Revelation 15. Revelation 15, we're looking at verses one through eight. That's the whole chapter. We're gonna do the whole chapter. Why not? I've been gone for six weeks. Let's cover some ground. Revelation 15, beginning in verse one. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the almighty, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord? and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures who gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word even when it is apocalyptic. We love your word and we need your word even though sometimes your word is hard. And we pray God that today you would teach us not to merely understand how to properly interpret a passage of scripture but Lord that you would teach us in our hearts, that you would change us in our minds, that you would cause us to be a people who genuinely do live today, each day in light of the judgment and the glory to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yeah, a lot of people don't really rejoice in the idea of the great day of the Lord. You read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, you read about the day of the Lord, the last day, the big day, the day of judgment. And for most Christians, it's not something that you're excited for because it's a day of terror for, for millions of people. It will be a day when the wicked are judged when people answer for their sins if they haven't found deliverance in Christ. Most of us recoil from judgment because even if we know theologically it's a good thing, it's an important thing, it's a sad and unfortunate reality. We don't delight in the death of the wicked, but we should delight in God's work of judgment. I mean, who is it that would actually delight in the great day of judgment, in the coming judgment? Who would possibly look forward to that day? I'll tell you who. It's people who see evil in the world and grieve it. It's people who are burdened with the oppression and the corruption and the wickedness in the world. And not just because the church is persecuted, not just because Christians are feeling the weight of of evil and wickedness, but because evil and wickedness is afflicting everybody. 
People who need rescue, people who long for redemption, look forward to that great day when all wickedness will finally cease, when all evil will finally come to an end. And I want us, I want us as a church, as followers of Christ, I want us to be a people who can look forward to this day of judgment. And here's what I think we can see in this passage. That there's one thing, like one point that I wanna make in this whole time that we have together based on Revelation 15, it's this. That the judgment to come, right, this future judgment, that last day, that the judgment to come should strengthen our hearts for today. Like this future hope that we're supposed to have and this future terror for so many would be something that strengthens our hearts today. We oftentimes think of, of the, these doctrines and these ideas that are happening in the end, eschatology is what we call that, that those eschatological doctrines aren't very practical, but here we see that they are. Now, I've been gone for six weeks, thank you, COVID. Uh, back to preach, we're back in Revelation. And so if you're visiting here or, if, or maybe you, you've been here for a while, but you're kind of like, where are we at in Revelation? Let me give you a brief Revelation recap, okay? So the book of Revelation was recorded by the apostle John. The apostle John, beloved by Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. John, uh, preaching the gospel, establishing churches, used by the Lord, persecuted, hunted down, arrested and exiled to an island called Patmos. And there, while he was on this racky crag uh, of an island, suffering, dying, essentially, there, Jesus gives him this revelation, right? It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And John begins to write it all down as this revelation continues. And the revelation of Jesus Christ is essentially a series of visions. It's one vision followed by another vision, followed by another vision, followed by another vision. You get the idea. And these visions are sort of all stitched together. But instead of telling like this long story that begins at point A and then ends at point Z, it tells a story in several different ways, the same story. So it, it, it'll use uh, imagery like uh, seven trumpets and what that symbolizes or seven seals or seven bowls. And we'll have these visions of what's happening in heaven and these, these visions of, of what's happening in the world today. It looks ahead, but it looks at the present. In fact, all of these visions are communicating one central idea. And the central idea is that of the victory of Jesus and his church over the devil and the world that wars against them. That's the theme. This was put together by Jesus given to John to encourage the church in the midst of tribulation and suffering in an evil world. So, this is the theme of the whole. Though you suffer, though there is evil, Christ is victorious and you with him will conquer in the end. So now here we are in chapter 15. This is the beginning of another vision. And this vision is, is introducing the seven bowls of wrath and the seven angels that will pour them out in chapter 16. So 15 is a bit of a setup for what we're really gonna get into next week. And it begins in verse one with seven angels and God's wrath. Then I saw another sign in heaven, 
great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So we have seven angels, uh, seven in the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature, lots of, symbol, lots of symbolism. Uh, seven is a perfect number, right? It's a perfect number. Uh, and, and these angels are tasked by God to pour out his wrath in this apocalyptic vision. And these plagues that they're going to be pouring out on the world represent God's final judgment. So far in the book of Revelation, what we've seen is that, yes, there is a day coming where God's judgment will be fully manifested, but until then, his judgment against wickedness in the world is only tasted. It's here and there. It's partially manifested, but not fully. And this is why in many of the visions you'll see like, well, only, it says only a third of the world is harmed in that particular vision or a quarter of the sea is impacted by this in this particular vision. But here, with them, with these seven angels, the wrath of God is finished. So here John has a vision. He's looking forward to the very end when God's final day of judgment comes, when his patience with the world has come to its appropriate end. And not only do we have these seven angels that are going to be sent by God for the pouring out of his wrath, we see these, in verse two, these conquering Christians. Then I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So you see, he he's, he's, he's has this vision. He's getting a, a look into heaven again. And he sees these angels that are announced and they're going to be bringing forth God's judgment. But then he sees this sea of glass that's mixed with fire. Now, if you've been reading the book of Revelation or if you've been following along with us, you know that the sea of glass is actually referenced in chapter four, verse six, right? And so what, what do we have in chapter four? We have a vision that John has given of God on his throne in heaven, right? He, he has this image, God on a throne, and what do we have around the throne but a glassy sea, a sea of glass that sort of separates and exalts God. Lots of interpretive ideas about what the sea of glass represents and all of that, but really what we are sure of is that it demonstrates or it, uh, it sort of signifies that God is holy and transcendent that he is other. But here, when, when John peeks into heaven, he's struck by this sea of glass. And the reason it's drawing his attention is because now this glassy sea is mixed with fire because it is now the day of judgment. God's fiery judgment is about to be poured out. This is the end. But next to the glassy sea mixed with fire are these Christians, these, these believers who have conquered. And, and we're told, like, well, they've, they've actually conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. So you know, here we're, we're going back to chapter 13. Right? In chapter 13, we read about these beasts. One rose out of the sea. Again, it's another vision. We're not going to have giant monsters fighting, though that would be cool. We're not going to have giant monsters fighting in the end. Book of Revelation gives us these dramatic, scary images that tell us what's happening in the world today. Giant monster out of the sea, giant monster out of the land. Now, the, this beast that emerges out of the land oppresses and afflicts the people of God. 
And as this beast is controlling the people of the world through philosophy and, and corrupt government and, and, and ideologies and, and, and even false religions, as, as this evil principle, entity, is at work in all of its different forms, deceiving the world and oppressing people, the church is pressured to follow along, to take on this mark, this mark of the beast, which isn't a number tattooed on you. I've got my own number tattooed on my forearm. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not a number, it's not a microchip, it's not the vaccine. The mark of the beast is a symbol that you are in alignment with that you are submissive to, that you are following this corrupt and evil principle in the world. See, there's also the mark of God that the faithful receive in the book of Revelation. So what we have here are people who have overcome the beast and the mark. Now, how do you overcome the beast and the mark? It's not through military might. You don't take down the monster by conquering the culture. These believers have conquered or overcome the beast by being faithful to the end, even to the point of death in the midst of persecution. They overcome by persevering, by believing, even if it costs them their lives. And so here are these saints who have persevered to the end and now they are getting ready to praise God with these harps of God. And I know harps, you might be thinking like harps, like worst musical instrument of all time. Not true, by the way. There are many, many others uh, that I think are worse. In fact, I doubt that, I, ah, maybe one family represented here actually has a playlist with just harp music on it. I'm gonna say maybe one family. The rest of you aren't listening to harp music. It's just not something culturally that most of us are into. But if you've ever actually listened to harp music, it's pretty sweet. It's pretty nice. There's a reason it was so popular and it's been around for so many centuries. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, the harp is like one of the most frequently cited musical instruments that the people of God use when they want to praise God. Let me give you one example here. In Psalm 33, verse two, it says, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. It's a stringed instrument. Make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. Right, so God's people are called to worship and part of our worship is musical. And God advocates that we use instruments, even throughout the Old Testament in particular. So here we have these saints that have been faithful to the end. It's, it's the day of judgment is, is here. And here they are. They've persevered. They've remained faithful. They have these harps of God. They're going to sing. They are going to worship. And they're going to sing a particular song. It's called the Song of Moses and the Lamb. It looks like there might be two songs when you read it because of the way it's, it's sort of translated. But it says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb saying, and this comprises one song. Now there's a reason it's called the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. And it's not just because we're trying to, you know, point out that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. It's called the song of Moses because Moses has two songs in scripture and they're rather well known among the Israelites. In Exodus 15, we have a song of Moses and in Deuteronomy 32. Now Moses was a deliverer of his people, one sent by God the Father to redeem an enslaved people, to rescue them out of Egypt, out of their bondage and oppression, and to lead them into the promised land. 
But for this to work, God would have to perform many miracles and signs and mighty deeds and would ultimately judge the Egyptians. He would condemn them. There was a day of judgment that they faced in which the armies that pursued Israel as they fled, well, they were destroyed. And Exodus 15, that song of Moses, is reflected here in this song, which is the song of Moses and the Lamb. So let me just go back, if I could, to Exodus 15. Just listen to some of this. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So they've escaped Egypt, and God has crushed the Egyptian army behind them. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. You get the idea. These Egyptians faced a day of judgment. They answered for their rebellion. They were given every opportunity to repent, to stop, to do what God says, every opportunity. But God's patience ran out, and in the deliverance of his people, he winds up condemning justly these oppressors. So they sing this song, this beautiful song of Moses. Well, this song that, that, the, that these people are about to sing in heaven at the end, it's looking forward, it's the song of Moses and the Lamb. You see, we have a song of a deliverer who is like Moses, but so much more glorious. Because here we have one who is sent by the Father to deliver a people who have been enslaved to sin, oppressed by the devil, to redeem and rescue them from the world. He's like Moses, but exalted. Listen to this contrast, comparison and contrast in Hebrews chapter three. Just listen. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Jesus is the true deliverer. He is our savior. And so we have a song right here in two verses, which is the very heart of chapter 15, which is the heart of our time together today. The judgment to come, that great day of judgment, should strengthen our hearts for today. And this, this should happen because of three 
things, right? Knowing that the judgment of God is going to come should move us to marvel at God's greatness, to fear his holiness, and to worship him as worthy. That's what I want us to see in this song. That's, the, that's what I think is gonna help us to see the principle that'll make a difference in our lives today. So, number one, judgment, the judgment to come, this coming judgment, future judgment will strengthen our hearts as we marvel at God's greatness. Look at verse three, the beginning of this song. And they sing the song of Moses and the servant of God, the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. You see, as they sing about God, they can't stop proclaiming his excellencies. They have a very well-developed theology about who God is and what he has done. They're not making it up. They're not just talking about abstract qualities. They are considering God as he truly is. His deeds, his works are great and amazing. His ways are pure. He is almighty God. In a world in which we have so many people and principles claiming to be God, seeking the position of lordship in our lives, and many of us are tempted to look at them and to abandon the one true God, here we have the people in the end before the great day of judgment singing the praise of almighty God. There is no other and his ways are amazing. In fact, he is just and true. Now this is important for a number of reasons to recognize that God is just and true because it is God himself who created us and who redeems us, who owns us and defines us. And therefore it is he who unites us and binds us all together. And when we start to look forward at a day of judgment when people will answer for their sins, when time runs out, you might wonder, is this fair? It seems excessive. It seems kind of harsh. God's wrath is gonna fall on the world. Like, couldn't, isn't there another way? No, there isn't because God's ways are just. They are true. He is always good in everything that he does. He has a good purpose, a good plan that does not fail. And these people are marveling they are marveling at this God. And you see them united. See, we, we are so busy dividing ourselves, even as Christians, in this life with weak hearts because we lose sight of this truth. We divide over COVID and presidential candidates trying to measure which one of our candidates is more just and true than the other. When both of them are corrupt, all of them are wayward, none of them are really trustworthy, none of them will save us, but we do have one who is perfectly just and true, who should be uniting all of us together, despite our differences on secondary matters. He is the king of the nations. We need this. We need to know that there is a king who reigns, who always gets it right, and who will hold people responsible. See, the knowledge of God inspires awe. And if we begin to understand that God is amazing in all of his ways, that he is almighty God, that he is just and true, then even his judgment inspires awe because we know that it is right. And it is, it is an answer to the fundamental problem of our world. God redeems and he rescues, yes. But he also condemns evil, sin, and wickedness. 
that future day of judgment strengthens our hearts as we marvel at God's greatness when he is what binds us all together. Secondly, that coming day of judgment strengthens our hearts as we learn to fear his holiness. Look at verse four. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Fear of the Lord, it's uncomfortable for some people. And a lot of us as Christians, we sort of play soft with it. We're like, yeah, you know, you know, it doesn't mean fear. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean fear. It just means awe. And there's a real sense in which that's true. But there's a sense in which that's not enough. The fear of the Lord is much bigger than that. Whatever the fear of the Lord is, to fear God is to glorify God. As you begin to look at throughout scripture at all of that it says about fearing the Lord, and we're all familiar with that phrase, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you grew up in America, you've read books and you've watched movies and you've enjoyed TV shows that reference people who fear God. Whatever it means to fear God, it definitely indicates that you have prioritized him, that his glory is your aim in one way or another. Listen to Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, something that's said a few times in scripture, especially in the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who practice it have a good understanding. Right? The fear of the Lord grants us wisdom. It's a proper understanding of God, his place in our lives, and our place of submission to him. Or consider Proverbs chapter 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied, and he will not be visited by harm. The fear of the Lord actually protects us. It preserves us, whatever the fear of the Lord is. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Yeah, we could say it's awe, it's an awe of God, and that's fine, but let's, let me phrase it in a different way. Let's consider the fear of the Lord to be so gripped by his holiness and so awed by his excellency that we respond to him in faith, love, and obedience. I know that's not neat and clean and easy to memorize, but it helps us to get at the heart of what it means to fear the Lord. Right? To, to, to fear God is to be so gripped by his holiness, his transcendence, his otherness, his purity. We're so gripped by his holiness and we are so awed by his excellency and his beauty that we respond to him in faith. We believe him when he speaks. Love, he gets our priority of affection. In obedience, we do as he bids. See, to fear God is hard for us because that word fear usually means something negative or at least it has negative connotations. And we know that the Bible says, well, true love casts out all fear. And we understand that Jesus through his life, death and resurrection has so reconciled us to God that he is now our father forever and we should not be afraid of him. We shouldn't. No believer should be afraid of God as if he's going to crush us the first chance he gets. But we should still fear him. There are different kinds of fear. This is a healthy fear that recognizes that God is holy and could condemn us though we are assured he won't. 
It's a healthy kind of fear that you would have for an authority figure, particularly a father who will love you forever, yes, but will also hold you accountable for the things that you do. See, when you fear God, it strengthens your heart today. When you have a fear of the Lord, even in looking forward and understanding, it's a, it's a day of judgment. It's a day of terror. That, that strengthens our fear and that strengthens our heart because when you read the old treatises, uh, the old writings on this subject, on this doctrine, this idea, that unpacks all of the things that the Bible says about the fear of God. When you read the, the most modern books, there's a new one from, from Crossway that just came out. Uh, I think it's by Michael Reeves. I forget the name of it. But uh, even there, in all of these books, in all of these sermons, in all of these treatises, one thing that they all say is that those who fear the Lord do not fear anything else. See, to fear the Lord means you stop being afraid. Why? Because you realize that there is only one worthy of fearing and he is for you. He is with you. He gives you strength. The one that we fear is forever walking with us through this world to preserve us to the end We fear God. Maybe another way to think about it is this. When you fear the Lord, you are so aligned with him that you love what he loves and you hate what he hates. Like you are aligned. Not in the sense that you are equal, but in the sense that you are a proper follower. Listen to Proverbs chapter eight, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God, but it is being so in line with him, his character and his will that you willingly, graciously, even enthusiastically submit to his ways and you feel the way that God feels about these things. When you fear the Lord and you share his heart, then you desire the day of judgment not to make people pay for their sins in some sort of sense where you rejoice in someone's punishment. But we desire the day of judgment because justice is needed. The innocent need to be vindicated. The righteous need to be set free. And the wicked will have to answer for what they've done. Have you been paying attention to what's going on in the world? I know you have, because we talk about it. The world's jacked up, and it's always been. It's nothing new. But it's so painfully obvious now that in, and in our country, there is corruption and evil. There is a holocaust of children being aborted. We have what's going on in Afghanistan where all of these people are, are suffering and being oppressed by, by wicked men. I see a female translator literally being stomped. <laughs> yeah. See, what Joe wants is for that person to be beheaded slowly, if I'm being honest. 
that's not the right thing to want. That's just how my flesh responds when I see someone being abused or hurt. But the person who fears the Lord looks at that and looks at all the evil and all the corruption and all the danger and says, we need God to do what's right, to bring justice to this world so there's no more evil, there's no more corruption, there's no more abuse. And this God who will bring a day of judgment is the same God who invites everybody, including those abusers, gives them an opportunity to turn from their sin and to look to Christ and to experience forgiveness. We should fear his holiness as we marvel at his greatness. And if you're looking forward to that great day and you see that we're all worshiping, then you know that that we will worship God as worthy because his righteous acts are revealed. You see that? All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. What are God's righteous acts? His righteous acts are, well, most simply, right? Categorically. His righteous acts, you could say, are his creation. He created all things and made all things good. But we sinned, brought misery and ruin into creation. So what's God's next righteous act? It is redemption, salvation, the promise of restoration without any chance of decay again. And judgment. Judgment is one of God's righteous acts. Now, how do we see God's righteous acts most clearly? His creation, his redemption, his judgment? We see them in Jesus Christ. We see them in Jesus. Uh, In Hebrews, if we go back to Hebrews and just listen to Hebrews chapter one, verse one. Listen, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, creation. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, redemption. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down and now we wait for his return. He's in session right now. He's seated in authority, in glory. We are awaiting his return, the day of judgment. We see this most clearly in Christ, his works, and this moves us to worship. And we worship in song, we worship joyfully, we worship obediently. In fact, our worship extends beyond what we do on Sunday in a formal service like this to the way that we live our lives on a daily basis. Like when we consider Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul says, it's in light of all that God has done for you in Christ that you should be offering up the totality of your being, he says your bodies, as living sacrifices, that this is your spiritual form of worship every day, not just Sunday. Worship is the response to understanding that the coming judgment is good and necessary. The judgment to come should strengthen our hearts for today. We should look forward to it because the world needs it. And in the meantime, we should be proclaiming Christ to everyone who will listen that they might escape what you and I have escaped. After this, 
we have a bit more and we're gonna cover this when we look at chapter 16 next week. But the sanctuary is opened and in verse five, this is really a, a picture of the temple or the tabernacle which had an outer court and an inner court and then there was a, a structure in the middle called the holy place where the Jewish people couldn't just go in there. That was just for the priests where you know, there was a sacrifice offered outside of that and they would go inside and they would offer up prayers and there was incense and there was bread and there were candles and then there was the holy of holies the most holy place where the ark of the covenant resided right and that's where the presence of God was said to dwell among the people and so in verse 5 when it says the sanctuary of the tent of witness that's the most holy place being referenced there was opened out of the sanctuary come these seven angels with seven plagues so we're leading up to this there's a picture of heaven the people of God are worshiping. It's the time for the day of judgment and God sends these angels out from his presence with these plagues. And one of these four living creatures that we read about earlier, give them these bowls full of the wrath of God. They're about to pour this out. And it says that at this point, the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues and the seven angels were finished, right? The plagues had to be poured out. The angels had to do this work. Here's the point. God has been patient for centuries, for thousands of years, calling people to leave their sin, to deny themselves, to look to him, to trust in the Savior. But there will come a day when time is up and judgment will begin and there will be no more opportunities. The temple will fill with smoke and no one will have access to it until it's all done. This, this is what we have, a future hope that is good for us, but terrifying for the world. It should change how we live today. It should strengthen our hearts because it means that day of judgment means that God has not abandoned us. He has not given up on the world. It means he will certainly deliver as certainly as he will damn. And this is for his glory. Not everything that we believe, not everything that's in scripture is easy, sugary, or bite-sized. Sometimes it's tough and difficult. Sometimes it's hard to swallow. So we take time to understand why even a day of judgment is good. And we live in light of that reality now as a people unified in Christ who are all about the mission that he gave us to make disciples of all nations, to preach this, this message of the cross to everyone that they might come to share in the salvation that we have by grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us well beyond what we've had time to look at briefly here today. We ask God that you would strengthen our faith Unite us in love, Lord, that we would be about your glory, but that we would also be about preaching the gospel so that as many as possible, so that the worst people, people who are almost as bad as we are, would be converted. 
Lord, we, I don't want to see people be condemned forever, even though I recognize that that is just. So I pray that you would give us not just opportunity, but fruitfulness in inviting people to trust in your son. In Christ's name, amen.